Well, good morning. If you have recently spent time around a two-year-old, a three-year-old, possibly a four-year-old, I'm just going to let you know, you're probably not going to like what we're about to start this morning. Because one of the things that little kids love to do is they love to ask the question, why? Why is the sky blue? Why is grass green? Why do we go to church? Why did we get pews? And on and on and on. And eventually his parents are like, I'm just so exhausted by the why question. And then you show up to church on a Sunday morning and you find out we're starting a new series called Practicing What We Preach. And this is going to be a first for us because it is a sporadic sermon series. If you don't know what a sporadic sermon series is, it's because we just made it up. Sporadic sermon series means every fifth Sunday, we are going to pick up the next piece of this theme about practicing, preaching what we practice. See, as a member of this congregation, there is a good chance that on any Sunday morning, you can predict with 90 to 95% accuracy exactly what elements service will have. In fact, even if you're a visitor, if you're familiar with the Churches of Christ, you're probably going to guess with between 85 to 90% accuracy about every aspect and element of what we do here together. And I think that's because we realize the easiest thing to pass on are the practices. You can pass on practices without any intentionality, without any effort, without any even rationale. It just simply will get passed on because when you sit there, you begin to say, this is what these people do. But what is much harder, what is more difficult to do, what is harder to be intentional about is passing along the purposes. Why do we do the things that we do as a church body? And that's only going to happen if we're intentional. So that's the purpose of this sermon series, is to have these regular scheduled times where we can take a little bit of time to say, here's why we do what we do. From the very beginning, in the Bible, it's very important that God's people knew both the practices and the purposes of those practices. This passage may seem somewhat familiar. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 through 27. You shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord your God will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he has passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and has struck down the Egyptians, but spared our horses. And the people bowed down and worshiped. So, there's a couple of things I want to be sure that we recognize here. The first is that they, Israel practiced, had this practice that they were commanded to observe on a regular basis. It was to be a perpetual ordinance. So, God intended from the very beginning that this would be a practice that would be an ongoing thing that they would participate in and that they, they would do. And I think because of that, the second thing we realize is that God realized at some point, children who are not a part of that generation are going to wonder, why are we doing what we're doing. What's the purpose? Why does it make sense for us to continue? And so embedded in the Passover is this instruction when children ask about the Passover, you give them these instructions. So there are some who were not there as when it was first given, who are going to later wonder what exactly is the reason for doing what we are doing. 
And it's important that we, not, that we know not just the practices, but we know the purposes also. Now, I know this is an old story, and it's been around forever, but I think it illustrates it well, where the young couple has just got married, and that morning, um, his, his, his wife is getting ready to cook a boneless ham, and she cuts off both ends of the ham, and she puts it in the pan, puts it in the oven. The husband says, well, why'd you cut off both ends of the ham? So I don't know, that's what my mom always did. So the next time she was with her mom, she said, Mom, uh, I noticed that you cut off a little piece off the right and you cut a little piece off the left and you put it in the oven. Why do you do that? I said, well, I, my mom always did that. And so the next time the daughter was with Grandma, she asked Grandma, said, Grandma, why do you cut off a little bit from the right and a little bit from the left? And Grandma said, because otherwise it doesn't fit in the pot. There's a problem if practices are passed down, but the purposes are not understood. If the purposes themselves are not passed along. I think we can illustrate that also in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have been factions among you, for only so it will become clear uh, uh, who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. So the early church here is continuing a practice called eating the Lord's Supper. The origin of the practice, Paul's going to introduce a little bit later, but we're going to come to find that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he took of the uh, fruit of the vine, he took of the bread, and he told them to do this in remembrance of me. So they are continuing a practice that had originated with Jesus, which also is rooted in the Old Testament as we had Alan showed us this morning. But the purpose for this, we're going to realize, is not just that there is a purpose, there are layers of purpose. And for, for this Lord's Supper to function as it should, people need to understand what is the purpose of doing this. And a part of the purpose was to remember Jesus, to remember that his blood and that his body is a part of a new covenant. But Paul's saying the purpose is actually something else and something in addition to that. A part of the purpose is that when we collectively do this, we remember that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so by doing this, a, a part of the purpose is, is a glue sort of a thing. It is a unifying sort of thing. It's something that brings us together. But what if you take the Lord's Supper in a way that doesn't bring you together, but it forces you apart? Some take while some have nothing. And Paul will say, if you do it this way, it is not for the better, but it is for the worse. In fact, Paul will say, it's not even really the Lord's Supper that you're taking. See, when we do not put together the purposes and the practices, the practices themselves become empty, and sometimes even the practices can lead us away from the ultimate purpose. So, that's why we're doing this series. To, to, to make sure, if you're not familiar um, with this church body, to make sure that you understand the purposes of why we do the things we do in worship. Or if you're a, a child and you're growing up and you've seen we've done all of these things and yet you've often wondered, well, why do we do them? That's the purpose of us taking this time. Now, I want to make sure three things I make clear as we enter into this series. And the first is, my intention is to limit the discussion to positive purposes for why we do what we do in worship. Uh, it is very easy to just say, you know what, those guys over there and those guys over there, that's not what we're interested in. You may, get a, you, you may expect to have a sermon that says why we give on a weekly basis. 
But we're not going to have a sermon series on why we do not handle poisonous snakes. Because that's not something we do. We are going to talk in a positive way about the practices that we embrace and the practices that we have here. Second thing I want to be sure we realize as we enter into this sermon series is that um, we're going to talk about we from the perspective of two we's. Doesn't that sound confusing? We're going to talk about we from the perspective of two we's. So the easiest way to understand is that we call ourselves the Billings Church of Christ. And the two we's are embedded in that term. The first we is Church of Christ. Uh, We are a part of a historical movement. Sometimes it is called the Restoration Movement. Sometimes it is called the Stone Campbell Movement. But we have a history and a heritage. So when we talk about what we do, a part of what we're talking about is what happens within the churches of Christ. Now, I will also acknowledge that some of you don't believe we do have a history. And some of you believe that our history does not influence us. And so I'll just simply say, the burden falls on me to illustrate how that might be true. But the second we is the Billings Church of Christ. Churches of Christ are autonomous, which means we have no governing body that says everyone's going to do this across the board. And so if you were to go to the Bozeman Church of Christ or the Belgrade Church of Christ, they might have some practices that are a little bit different than our practices. And so what we want to talk about is why we have chosen to do the things that we do as a church body. And the third and the final thing is we kind of lay some groundwork here is that I realize there's inherent dangers in using the word we. Uh, Anytime you say we believe, there's going to be somebody raise their hand and say, I don't think that. I don't believe that. Um, And and yet what we're going to do in this sermon series is, is to represent as a collective whole, what are the values, what are the beliefs, what are the practices Um, of the majority within the churches of Christ. But again, I realize for some of you, you will say, well, that's not what I believe. Now, instead of this morning introducing a specific practice of worship, what we're going to do for just this one sermon is we're going to talk a little bit about the history of our approach to worship. How do we decide what happens in worship? How do we decide what should be done in worship? So we're going to start with a little bit of history within the Restoration Movement. Uh, The Restoration Movement uh, began with this desire to restore primitive Christianity. It was this belief that something in 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth, since the early church was established, that something has been lost along the way. And the Restoration Movement is a group of people who said, we want to recapture and restore what has been lost. And the best way to do that is to pay close attention to the Bible and specifically pay very close attention to the letters in the New Testament. And so specifically of worship, it was decided that what we should do is we should replicate the practices that they had in these New Testament churches. And that replication comes in the form of copying the structures and the forms of the churches that you see in the New Testament. This commonly became known as patternism. The churches in the Bible serve as a blueprint or a pattern that we can then copy or imitate that pattern to be sure that we are worshiping in the way that God wants us to worship. And then there are these three tools that became really helpful in figuring out what does the pattern look like. uh, And those are commands, examples, and necessary inference. A command is anything that has an apostolic command or something that Jesus commanded. Those should be things that are included in the the pattern. Um, An example, do you see an illustration of this thing happening in Scripture? That becomes a part of the example of the pattern that we follow. And then the most 
obscure of the tools is necessary inference. Necessary inference basically says if you are a reasonably rational thinking person, you would come to the same conclusion as I would come to. You would infer that this is what is and should be happening. And so with these tools in place, the restoration movement sought to restore primitive Christianity. Now, I think there are some values in what comes out of that movement, and then there are also some things we need to be aware of. And so I want to start with what I think the values of that patternistic approach are. Number one, it constantly calls us back to the scriptures. If we're having a discussion about worship within the churches of Christ, you should expect that somebody will turn to the Bible. That this is not a discussion about what I think or what I feel or what I believe. That we believe that God has a will and an intention for what happens in worship. And the best way to discover that will and intention is through the Bible. Somewhat related, all three of these are somewhat related, is the high, it places a high value on God's preferences in worship. We believe that worship should be about what God wants worship to be about. Indeed, we may all have ideas or thoughts or preferences about what happens, but ultimately, this kind of patternistic history says we want worship to be about what God wants worship to be about. So we ask, what are God's wishes, God's hopes, and God's desires for worship? And the third is, as worship practices continue to change at rapid speed, patternism actually provides us with a much-needed anchor. I'll simply say, if you're patternistic, you are never going to be on the cutting edge of worship. Um, But that time gives you time to evaluate prayerfully, is this intentionally God's will? Does it glorify God? Does it honor God? And so it gives us a needed anchor. But I think there's also three concerns with patternism that I think we need to be a little aware of. And the first is this, that patternism may tempt us to misplace our confidence when it comes to approaching God in worship. And I underline the word may because it's not a guarantee, but it can happen. Psalm 23, 4 says it this way, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Sometimes it seems like the answer from the restoration movement is those who get worship right. That that we recognize and we say that it is getting worship right that gives us the right to come to go before God in worship. I believe the correct New Testament answer is in Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by what? By the blood of Jesus. It is not perfection. It is not the right pattern that allows us to enter God in worship, but it is the very blood of Jesus Christ himself. If we stand before God in confidence in worship on anything but the blood of Christ, we may be standing on a false foundation. The second thing that can happen is focusing too much on the form of worship that can lead to a mechanical approach to worship. So I've spent this week looking at some different historical documents, and I found one that was comparing order of worship uh, from 1880 through 1890 to the orders of worship in 1910. And among some other changes, one of the most significant change was um, that the Lord's Supper used to be before the sermon. 20, 30 years later, then they started putting the sermon after, or they put the sermon before the Lord's Supper. And the reasoning was because of this. That was back when it was taught that the most important supreme uh, non-negotiable element of worship was you must be there for the Lord's Supper. And so, guess what? So for people who couldn't, can be a little me- mechanistic with their worship, what they would do is they would come until the Lord's Supper was done, and then they'd say, 
Peace out, I'm gone. Because I did the thing that was the most important thing. And beyond here, it's going to count less than that piece, so they would leave. And so churches started to say, well, we got to figure out a way to get people to stay till the entire end of the service. Now, mind you, their services were two to three hours long, so maybe you'd say, yeah, I'd need the same thing. But isn't something just amiss when the whole order of worship and what you're doing in worship is how do we convince people to stick around till the whole thing is done? Sometimes we can turn... Uh, have a mechanical approach to our worship. I think that's the danger that Isaiah describes. He says, because these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote, just simply going through the motions. Uh, the third, and for me, this is, the, this is the most challenging part of patternism is that there's never been any agreement ever exactly what the blueprint is, exactly what the pattern is that we need to be following. And I want to illustrate this in three ways. But first of all, I know some of you, when I say, Craig, why can't you just make things simple and easy for us and just say how we've always done it is right and we should just pat ourselves on the back? Oh, I wish I could do that. But it's like the kid who goes to learn how to do heart surgery and in the very first class, undergrad class in medical school where she looks and she says, that heart surgery thing looks simple. Give me a scalpel. Let me do it. What's the professor's job? The professor's job is say, no, there are a lot of things that go wrong. Until you respect this process, you cannot participate in this process. So I want us to realize that the process is a little bit more complex than we've given it credibility towards in the past. And so I'm going to illustrate that in three ways. The first is by talking about form and function. Form, of course, is what you do. Function is the reason why you do it. And here's the strange thing about form and function. Sometimes form and function are married together. And God's assessment is, let no man separate what God has joined together. And at other time, form and function are like the nut and the shell. You know, you just get rid of the shell because all you really care about is the nut. And so we have to figure out what things in New Testament Scripture um, are form and function married together, and at what things do we choose the form and the function. So let me illustrate. Two weeks ago, or possibly three weeks ago, I talked about uh, the ending of 1 Thessalonians, and you'll notice in the end of it, which I did not talk about, uh, was the holy kiss. So I'm standing at the back, and I don't think the gentleman is here right now, and I got right here on my lips a wet, slobbery kiss on my lips said the Bible says we should greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, how many of you say form and function is married together there? Probably not many of you because you've probably not often been kissed by each other at church. Instead, we say the function is to make sure people get a warm welcome when they come to church. So instead of a holy kiss, we might say it's a, it's a holy hug. Or we might say it's a hearty handshake. Or we might say it's a vigorous fist bump. But any of those things, we can say the form and the function are not married together. Um, Paul tells Timothy that when you pray, I want men to pray lifting up holy hands. That's 1 Timothy 2.8. So do we marry together form and function and say when men pray, they must lift up holy hands? Or do we say it's really the function of, of praying with a heart that's not in animosity towards each other? And so then you might be saying, okay, so what I'm learning is form and function don't belong together. Well, I believe in baptism, the form and the function are married together. 
The baptism is not something that you can say, well, the, you know, the ultimate intent is to, is to enter into a saving, unified relationship with God. And so if you want to do sprinkling, you want to do this, you want to do that. I mean, all of that, it doesn't matter. I actually believe that those two things are married together. The form of being immersed in water with the function of entering into a saving relationship with God. How would you feel if on a Sunday morning we said, all right, everybody grab your potato chip and your Coke as we share in the Lord's Supper? You might say, the form and the function belong together. So, we just realize it's a little bit more difficult than we claim for it to be because it's hard to know sometimes when form and function belong together. And I think my second illustration may show this. So, the year is 1951. The location is the Abilene Christian University Lectures. The preacher is John Bannister. And he stands at the podium and he says, Worship consists of five distinct acts or items of worship on the Lord's day. The essential thing is that when we worship, we engage in all these scriptural acts. To have less than these required five is to render worship vain. To have more than these is to corrupt the worship. And everyone applauds and yay. But does John Bannister know, and I honestly doesn't, don't know if he does or not, but that uh, 31 years before, in 1920, at that same pulpit, at that same ACU lectureships, uh, M.C. Curfees talked about basically the same thing, except he said the six acts of worship. And if you have more than six, it's vain. If you have less than six, it doesn't count. And I'm left thinking, so are there five or are there six? So Curfee's added the reading of Scripture as an act of worship. So if you're a part of the Billings Church of Christ, we can all breathe a sigh of relief because we read Scripture every Sunday, right? Unless Bannister is right. And if Bannister is right, that means every Sunday when someone reads Scripture, we say that's not one of the acts of worship. Now, you might be saying, seems, Craig, like this is not really a very big deal. If you are a patternist, it is a big deal because this is what makes your worship either valid or invalid is if you get the right items in the right service and if you don't, it doesn't count. So patternism can be difficult and challenging for us. There's a lot of things that we do in worship that we think everyone who would read their Bible would think that's exactly how it should go. I came across an interesting um, book. It's an a, a 1889 book by J.H. Foy. He is a member of the Restoration Movement. The book is called The Christian Worker, a practical manual for preachers and church officials. Oh, there are so many things I want to share from this book, but I narrowed it down to two. Um, the one is a reminder of a practice that I know has happened at least 100 years before. Do you know that when churches used to do the Lord's Supper, when it came time for that, they'd say, if you are not baptized, if you're not a member of this church, if you're visiting, please leave while we do this. And you'd be forced to go stand out in the parking lot, probably smoke, have a smoke, and then you would be invited back in. Do we do that today? No. Why? Probably because last week we didn't do it, so this week we're not going to do it again. But we might not understand why we've chosen to change that practice. Now, one of the things you need to know about Foy is he was labeled as a flaming liberal because of the stance he took around the Lord's Supper. See, during this time, uh, the practice was at the Lord's Supper, only elders could officiate or do anything related to the Lord's Supper. But Foy made the case in this book that the minister should be allowed to say something at the Lord's Supper, but he was forbidden from praying 
at the Lord's Supper, and that made him a liberal. What do we do? Brother Allen, how did he get the right to get up here and say what he said? And how did he get the... Well, maybe that has happened. And we need to ask ourselves, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? So the point simply is this. When we talk about worship, we need to approach it and realizing it's more complicated than we've given it credit for. And so we need to give it a little bit more thought about why do we do what we do? What is the purpose? What is the function of these things? I find something helpful in 1 Corinthians 14. Here Paul is discussing two specific acts of worship. He is talking about tongues and he is talking about prophecies. And I think one of the things that we learn here is that Paul points out that worship is bi-directional. It, it means it focuses, it, it has a Godward focus and a manward focus. Paul is asking the questions about what honors God, what blesses God, and then also what, what builds up other people. And both of these questions become a part of Paul's thinking process. They're asking what is happening in, in the hearts and in the lives of people in worship, Paul shows is a legitimate thing. In fact, that's why Paul's going to say, speaking in tongues when there is no interpreter, don't do it, because that's just involving God. But prophecy is something that honors God. It's something that encourages others. So let's keep that as a part of our corporate worship. And in that way of thinking, what Paul is doing is Paul is encouraging the Christians to do something more than just follow directives and commands. I mean, if Paul was a true blueprint guy, what he would have said is, do this because I say so. And do that because I say so. But Paul says, I want you to understand why we are doing these practices. And so instead of just giving directives and commands, Paul gives reasons and rationale for his directives. He wants to understand, here's why we don't do speaking in tongues when there's no interpret. Here's why we do do prophecy, so that people will know and understand those things. So I think that as we enter into the sermon series, there's two things I want to keep in front of us. God wants us to know the reason and the rationale for what we do. Uh, th this is not a, you know, check if this is the right answer, check if that is right. This is going to be an essay question where you have to explain a little bit about why do you do this? And Paul wants to be sure we're equipped with reasons and rationale. We also want to know the purposes of our practices. We don't want to be like the people during Isaiah's day whose hearts were far from God, even though they went through all of the right motions. We want to know and understand exactly what God intends. Our time in worship is here so that we can ensure that God's name receives the glory and the honor due Him. But also that everyone who participates will be built up, will be encouraged in their faith. And so as we go through the series, we're going to continue to preach about what we practice. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And just remember that as we go from here, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to sing a song in just a moment, and as we sing that song, myself and some of the elders will be in the back. If you want someone to pray with, if you want to talk about what the next step in your faith journey looks like, just encourage you to come and find us in the back while we stand and sing this next song together. Let's stand.